Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Guiding Light Podcast. I'm your host, Shane McClellan, and this week I have Mike with me. Hey Shane, how's it going? Good, how are you Mike? Doing awesome on another beautiful Grenada morning. That is correct, and luckily we are seeing some sun after about three days of all clouds and rain. Yep, we've uh, we've already been out um, on our vessel uh, with our kids, uh, out snorkeling. The, the rainwaters have cleared out, and it's a, a beautiful snorkel today as well. That is awesome, and I'm glad you brought up the kid part, because that's what we are going to talk about today. Cool. You are brand new to, not brand new to sailing, but brand new to cruising. You just bought your boat. And you have a one-year plan to sail with the kids and then either sail the boat or keep it, but you have to go back to your life back ashore. Is this all correct? Pretty much. I mean, what we have is I'm very fortunate to be a member of the emergency services back in Canada. Um, and we are very fortunate to have been given, uh, but both myself, I'm a firefighter and my wife's a paramedic, um, and both our employers were willing to give us a year's leave of absence. Okay. Um, so essentially, that's our that's our timeline as a year to get as, as much done as we can, um, with a view to if we can make it work financially through other income streams, then maybe we can keep going, and that point will resign from our jobs. But right now, we're just keeping it to a 12-month time frame, and then that will you know give us a really good. Uh, insight as to this lifestyle uh, and and how we all adapt to to spending a year afloat. That is awesome. And what I'd like to do is is start at the beginning. And I'm sure a lot of listeners would love to hear, uh, you know, with the kid part and that side. So first, what is your sailing experience? So I have I don't have a lot of sailing experience. I I say that um, I'm a, a Canadian Yachting Association basic sailing instructor so I know my basics um, I can you know I can tell you the parts of the boat I can do man over board drills um, but in terms of the boat that we've just purchased which is a 46 foot catamaran which is a Robertson and Kane Leopard um, I'm used to sailing on little 22 foot cabin cruises so to to transfer to such a large boat and a catamaran has been quite the adjustment especially when it comes just comes to systems because uh, I think sailing is sailing. It doesn't matter what boat you're on. The, the principles of sailing are exactly the same. But the actual day-to-day management of, of your boat is is the biggest challenge. Um, but sailing experience before that, we'd had uh, we'd done two uh, one-week um, bare boat charters, one in Thailand and one in the Seychelles, which we absolutely loved. And that was pre-kids. That was when you know we were footloose and fancy free and we could do whatever the, we wanted whenever we wanted. Um, so the, the kid part definitely plays a huge uh, a huge part of the story in terms of how our, my sailing experience has kind of developed. Um, but blue water experience, uh, before we purchased the boat, we had absolutely zero. Okay. But you had some, you, like you said, you knew how to move a boat, and you were on a 22-foot uh, boat. I'm just curious from my own experience, what was the 22-foot boat? It was a 22-foot Tanza. Okay. I happened, I was hoping you were going to say J-boat, because <laughs> I happened to teach off the J-22 back mm-hmm. in Colorado. So, anyways, um, and then you had the kids, and we were talking two beautiful little girls that are six and four. That's correct, yeah, Aria and Isla. And they are adorable and are full of energy. I mean, they are bouncing all over the place. It is just fun to watch as y'all were anchored behind me. What prompted the idea to take the year off, buy a boat, which is not a small investment, to buy the boat and take the kids sailing at this age. One of the uh, the biggest things that we see, uh, and especially with us being emergency service shift workers, is that, that we, we, we're always crossing paths. Uh, my wife, uh, Andrea, and I are like ships in the night sometimes. Um, I will be leaving work at 4.30 in the morning as she comes home at 8. Um, and we have that crossover where we need a, a babysitter, and, and the kids just r- r- rarely see us at the same place at the same time. Um, and typically, when they do see us, we're exhausted because I, I work a 24-hour shift and Andrew does 12-hour shifts. So she, when she comes off nights, her days are pretty much written off. And we just found that we were getting into this rat race. It was drop the kids off. As, you know, you wake up in the morning and you rush them to school. They're at school until 3.30, 4 o'clock. You take them straight from that to an extracurricular activity. For them, it was martial arts, which they absolutely love. They do uh, jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai. And from there, they're there for about an hour and a half, two hours, and then they come home, they have dinner, and they go to bed. And we just found that what are we doing as parents? We're, we're kind of not 
allowing ourselves to have this time with our kids, um, you know, and parenting and, and sharing those experiences shouldn't be reserved just for the weekends or on your, your two or three week vacation once a year. Um, and we really felt that we needed to make a bit more of an effort with the kids. And, and that's why we felt that this was the best time. We'd read a lot of books. We'd followed Sailing Totem, um, and we'd read the um, uh, the uh, cruising. I think it's called Cruising Guide for Kids. Uh, which, if you if you are a parent thinking about cruising with your kids, it's a fantastic book. It's written by um, I think three different cruising couples um, about their experiences. And a lot of people in that book had said that it just makes more sense to take kids when the earlier the better. Because they're so much more adaptable. Once they're into their, you know, early teens, um, then they have, you know, they have uh, social circles, they have friends, they have. It makes it that much more challenging to to take them away for for, for a long time to do traveling like this. So that's why we decided, like, now was the time. Um, Andrew and I were tired of work, and the, the, we just want to spend more time with the kids and give them, you know, the best eye-opening experience that they can have that will help mold them as they grow up. I think that's awesome, and I love the whole approach of wanting to spend more time with the kids. But you could do the same thing. You don't necessarily have to do it on a boat. The idea is just to get away and spend the time with the kids, and as you're saying, be more each day where y'all are spending time as a family. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many things that you miss. I mean, when they're at school for, for six hours a day, that you miss so many opportunities and I'm not saying and we're not helicopter parents by and we're completely opposite I mean we are free-range parenting at the extreme where we allow the kids to you know really push their boundaries and and I think that's important that we it's too easy these days to bubble wrap your kids because mm -hmm. you, you don't want to be judged by other people well and hopefully you're okay with this story but uh, the, he's saying he's not a helicopter parent we I was on another boat that's on the other side of their boat and one of the girls came swimming over and so we said okay wave to your mom and dad to make sure they know you're okay and they weren't even looking they said you know okay go swim okay they're gonna be good and you know type of thing and yeah. I, that was great you know it was awesome and, and i've heard you say several times it takes a village to raise a kid and you are okay with the cruising community and the friends mm -hmm. that you've made to you know, help and, you know, watch the kid and do this. And because there's so many things that kids are going to learn from you, but also from another perspective or whatever. And that's whether you're sailing or in land life, it's always good to have positive role models as many as you can in a kid's life. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's, and we comment on this all the time that I don't know many kids back at home who are so ready to engage with engage in conversation with adults. Absolutely, um, because they're so they're so used to just engaging with their own peer group and their own age group that they don't really know how to communicate with adults. Well, in my ten years of being on the boat, I have met lots of kids that grew up on boats or have spent uh, several years on boats, and what I have noticed is the kids are more worldly where you want them to be and more innocent where you want them to be. And what I mean by that is worldly, they are experiencing and they're hanging out and they're understanding cultures outside of America. They can have conversations with adults and they can do all these type of things, but they're not exposed to the drugs, the sex, the rock and roll, all that type of thing. And you're able to keep them more innocent than they can be when they're back home and being influenced by media and friends and all that. I, one of the things I like to say is I want the kids to be influenced by life and not by social media. That's perfect. Because, I, yeah, it's just too easy. And, and, and I find this ourselves, don't get me wrong, I mean, we still, the kids still have access to technology. I mean, a lot of their homeschooling and stuff is done via tablet and they have apps and, and, and then we have workbooks that we take them through. Um, but they're still a little young right now to have any access to social media, but that's going to come. I mean, you know, as a, as a cruising family looking to potentially do this long term, we're, we're, we're putting ourselves out there by creating a brand around what we're doing. You know, we have a website and a blog and YouTube channel and all that kind of stuff. So we are, we, we are, there's no way to shelter anybody from, from that world. And I, and I would never, um, say to anybody that you should, because it is literally an integral part of our society now worldwide it doesn't matter where you are 
So you for can't... good or bad. For, I mean, for good it, or bad. Is, it is society at this point. And, and that's the thing is, is as as culture and society changes, you have to recognize those changes and embrace them, but embrace it in a way that's constructive. Uh, and I find sometimes, you know, if if you do allow kids to, you know, become completely absorbed into their social media. Um, and their instant gratification, their instant connection with friends at all times, then there's the challenge that they lose the ability to get out and actually go meet new people. Um, so yeah, I, I find, anyways, so, so going back to, to being on the boat, they will have access to that stuff eventually. It's just because their age right now doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really warrant that. But again, because we have this brand and we, we eventually will have people following what we're doing and, and actively engaging with the kids, um, that's going to come with time. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a healthy way to do it. And one of the nice things about a boat is, you know, if you... Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot easier just to, to sail to a new anchorage that doesn't have Wi-Fi, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are challenges that we'll face, but we're trying not to look past the first year. Like, we really just want to... We're already finding in in the, just the first few weeks... I mean, we've only been in the water for... Um, since meeting you, Shane, we've only been in the water for, like, a, over a week, week and a half. So we're, we're certainly not super experienced people at this time. Um, we spent a, a week living in the boatyard because we're waiting on parts that seem to take forever to get here. Um, that you may or may not have needed in the first place, we find out. Yes, it may or may not have needed. So, that, yeah, let's not get into that conversation. <laughs> um, but, yes, yeah, so the it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to get used to this life. And, and, and we're finding that right now. We're just getting to that routine of homeschooling and, and things like that. So you're getting into your routine. And... The big question that a lot of people give me, and I'm not the right person to answer this because I don't have kids, but they're like, oh, you know, sailing with kids sounds like a great idea, but the kids need interaction with other kids. Even in the boatyard, y'all found kids for them to play with and do stuff with. And out here, you even in the first week, y'all have found that interaction. I know it's a little more difficult than, you know, us boats that don't have kids where we just sail in and meet whoever but what are your thoughts on that how do you think that's going to go and do kid boats just tend to gravitate to each other and do you have any thoughts yet on that oh absolutely i mean there is i, I found this too before we left that was one of the questions i got is how, how are you going to socialize your kids and to be perfectly honest i think the people uh, i think if you're listening to this and you're at home and your kids are in school and they're in they're they're in their their school classroom with kids of all the same age, and then you take them to an extracurricular where they're doing stuff with all kids of the same age. That's not socialization. That's institutionalization. Hmm. Um, whereas out here, they're meeting new people of different ages and different backgrounds, and they're, they're being forced to become incredibly extrovert, where they they're able to go and just. You know, we see a boat when we're in the boatyard, and a boat would arrive with kids. You can see kids on the boat. I say, kids, look, there's boat kids, and they go running down the dock to go and make friends. That's you know, there's nothing more makes you prouder as a parent when you have a six and a four year old where they have no inhibitions to go and make friends. They're not shy. They're they're going to be they're going to grow up to have you know very extra personalities and have no problem meeting people. Whereas you know sometimes we. We like to think life back at home is, you know, that is the way it should be. And really, I really feel that the institution that we live in, this, this box, is actually not teaching kids to be extrovert and to get out there and to experience new things. It's teaching them to be very used to what they have and not change. And on top of that, not just boat kids, but island kids too. Yep. And... And I will put a link in the show notes for this, but I wrote a blog, and before I pulled the boat out here at Grenada, and this was back in June or July, I had a family on board, and they were chartering with me, and we were up at, I believe you pronounce it as Guav, and I took the kids, and we were jumping off the pier. It's like a 20-foot jump and jumping off the pier, and all the local kids were out of school, and they're all fishing. And immediately they put the fishing poles away, and we're all jumping now. And and finally, the the kids on the charter, they were tired of doing the jumping. That wasn't really their thing. So we went back to the boat, and five or six of the local kids around their age, and we're talking somewhere between the 10 to 14 
age group, which is just an awesome age for boys as far as active, they all swam out to the boat. And we're, you know, we're talking a couple hundred yards off the beach type of thing. For the next two hours, all these kids, and there was probably like six of them all together, the two kids in this family and these four or five local kids, they were just giggling and chasing each other, having fun with the paddle boards and jumping off the boat. And just, it was awesome to see them. They weren't even my kids, you know. I wasn't the parent. Just seeing how kids, they don't care about race, color, religion. They just want to have fun, and they accept you for who you are. And that's what I love about watching kids play. Yeah, and that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, living in an institutionalized society where... Um, we, we don't because we we do the same things every day we get into our own routines at home whereas here when you're traveling and when you're on a boat especially um, you you're meeting new communities every day and your kids will then become you know familiar with these communities and these cultures and and it allows them to have a much broader um, outlook on life rather than just the you know the cookie cutter that we all end up being absorbed into because that's just the way that's just the way we live i agree with you 100 percent. and again it doesn't to get out of that cookie cutter it doesn't have to be on a boat no no absolutely and we know families who are, who are RVing, who are backpacking um you know you, you definitely have to pick the mode of transport that works for you um one of the reasons we picked sailing specifically is because my, my wife andrea and i we had done traveling i'd mentioned we had chartered twice before once in thailand and once once in the seychelles and those two charters were actually part of two um two larger trips they were two months long each so one the trip in thailand we had done uh, two months traveling around asia and finished off with, with the uh with, with the charter um and then in um the one in the Seychelles, we'd done some traveling through Africa um, and a little bit through Europe, and, and we stopped on the Seychelles on the way through. Uh, and just the one of the things we noticed on these trips was that what we didn't like to do was constantly be setting up home base again and again and again and again, yeah, trying to get familiar with with a new location and and everything is, is challenging enough. But when you you like to have this nice safe haven to come home to. Um, now, my wife and I, we, we had a travel trailer and we used to go camping and RVing um, around North America, but we love international travel and, and that's why the, the boat made sense for us because we get to take our home with us. Um, so that way, especially with the kids, they have this, this anchor, they have, no pun intended, but they have this, this grounding where we can go in and do some crazy stuff through the day. Um, you can go and do hikes in the, in the jungle and monkeys and this, that and the other, but when you come back, you come back home rather than going back to a hotel room or somewhere that doesn't feel like home, it just feels like you're on a vacation. So that was why, that's why we chose the boat, and I think that makes a huge difference for the stability for the kids and also for us as well. I completely agree, and I don't even have kids, and I completely agree with you that it's your home, like you said. I mean, it's, it's, I like going down and sleeping in my bed, my pillow, my blankets, you know, with my, you know, so I completely get what you're saying. And I know we were originally said we were going to talk about kids and starting to sail but i'm very intrigued by these two month long trips and if we can do a little tangent yeah tell me first about i'm assuming you say asia you're talking southeast asia tell me about this trip and where all you went and that type of thing because this podcast is not just sailing but it's sailing and travel so this is pretty fascinating and mm -hmm. i haven't been to these places and so these are some places i'm excited to go to and hopefully everybody else is excited to listen to yeah so our first trip was i think it was 2009 2010 and that was just very shortly after i'd become a full-time firefighter so uh having a shift and my wife becoming paramedics so we had lots of time we can do shift exchanges combined with vacation that gave us right. two months off which was fantastic that's a, one of the beautiful things about being in the fire service oh absolutely um so one of the, the, the we, so that trip the asia trip we uh, we started off in japan because my wife's half japanese oh, okay. um and we did uh we did a few days through Japan. We did Tokyo, um, uh, Hiroshima, uh, Nagasaki. Oh, we didn't. So we didn't go to Nagasaki. Does she have any family in, in Japan? No, still? she doesn't okay. have any family. Like everybody, everybody is Canadian. Um, okay. So, um, but it was it was amazing to go and visit all these places that she sure. learned about when she was a kid. So yeah, Tokyo, um, uh, Hiroshima, and to um, uh, Osaka. 
um, and we did a little bit of traveling on the train in between but we were compressing a lot of countries into this trip so we did japan china hong kong singapore malaysia and thailand okay uh so that was yeah so that was seven about seven seven to eight weeks and uh it was it was a fantastic uh because we did it very much uh, on budget a uh, huge budget trip so we were staying in hostels the whole way uh we just had backpacks and really um the only places we'd rent a car we rented a car in malaysia just to try to tra- drive from kuala lumpur um up to uh, lankawi okay uh from there we flew to bangkok um, but it was uh, it was quite the trip, and again, like when you when you do those so many countries in st- such a short p- space of time, it's very easy to do comparisons of the different cultures. Um, well, let's do that. Tell me about the different cultures. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, J- Japan's pretty pretty self-explanatory. I mean, the 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 Japanese are, are, are very very uh, precise culture. Everything is precise. Everything has to be its exact way. To the point where we were in Tokyo and we uh, we were, we wanted to go from our hostel to and go and see the Tokyo Fish Market, which opens at 5 a.m. where they bring in all the tuna, uh, and apparently it's quite the spectacle. Um, so we wanted to get there for 5 a.m. but we didn't realize the subway didn't open until 6. So when we found this out the night before, we said no problem, we'll, we'll walk. And it was a two and a half hour hike to get there. You know, in really in in the, the twilight hours of Tokyo, and it was like, is, is this the right thing to do? Like, is this a good idea? But Tokyo was just such a beautifully safe city, but the preciseness was shown to us going through some of the um, the underwalks as you go, uh, you know, underground to cross underneath the highway, and the homeless people, the homeless in the, in in the underground, um, their boxes that they were sleeping in, absolutely pristine, and their shoes are very neatly placed outside the box. The homeless. The homeless. Okay. And wow. I, I just meant like so. The, so the, the 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 level of precision in the Japanese culture is it, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. It's 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 ingrained from them from birth. Um, just to, you know, things have to be a certain way. And and yeah, very, amazing, amazing culture. Wonderful people. Um, very friendly. Super happy to help you. Um, but you you have to you have to conform. Um, you know, if you if you're a bit of a free spirit, that's fine. But you definitely have to follow the rules there and and kind of respect the way they do things. Um, but again, as a culture, when you some of the things you can see there historically are just unreal. Like some of the temples um, and the, uh, the the historical sites are thousands and thousands of years old. The activities that they're, they're doing within the temple are, are, are you know again very precise. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful country country and beautiful culture um and I, I the best part of the trip i found was was um going to um hiroshima okay um to the uh, the hiroshima a-bomb museum is absolutely breathtaking um it was i've never been to a museum in my entire life where i've read every single article in there looked at every picture there's something about it it's, it's very so I assume they have it in Japanese and English. Yes. yes. Any other languages that they put it in? Uh, from what I, remember, I I just remember seeing English. Okay. Um, but the uh, and then of course you have the you have an audio tape that um, you know the audio tour that you can listen gotcha. to on the way around. Um, but it's it's it, just the whole city that, or the downtown of the city that, that there's a memorial dedicated every other day. Um, but it's it's hallowing. Um, there was in in the in the in the museum there was a um, a huge flagstone. There was the step to a local bank, uh, and when the the nuclear bomb went off, there was a small child sitting on the on the step, and the his shadow, the child's shadow, was actually burnt into the rock. Okay. And you can actually make out the silhouette of the person wow. on the rock as he just disappeared. And coming from a neutral country as you are, being Canadian, how did they? I've never seen this, and so I'm curious. How did they represent it? Is it the evil Americans or just this no, is what happened? No, no, not or? at all. I mean, I think I think for them, I, mean, I did a little bit of, of studying of, of the Japanese after I, um, after we went, or actually before we went, and I think that they had a dramatic culture change um, after the war. Okay. And I think before the war, it was very, um, very dictatorial. It was you know this is this is the way we do it, and and. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a really great historian in terms of being able to describe it, but certainly I think after the war, they became a much more peaceful people. Okay. Because um, I know during the war, and it's not just American 
prisoners of war, but the, the Chinese and some of the other Southeast Asia have talked about the brutality of the Japanese army. Oh, yes, and absolutely. And, and it was almost, almost um, it raises the, the hairs on your, on your arms when you hear some of the stories of some of the things that they used to do. And it's, yeah, it, 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 absolutely inhumane, some of the things that they used to... But it's amazing in the 70 years... And you could say the same thing with um, Germany also, but the turnaround, not just of the recovery, but of the entire attitude. And I don't know if attitude is the right word, but the whole culture, like you said, they went from very warlike to not not just peaceful, but very successful business, precise, you know, and just have completely turned around that and taken off and are one of the world leaders at this point absolutely and I, th I think it's you know i think with every empire that there's ever been I, th I think that's that's what happens when your empire crumbles i think you have to face reality that we have to be a little bit more introvert in terms of looking at our culture and how we can now live in the world now our empire is gone uh, you look at the Romans, you look at the British, you look at um, the Japanese. It's all very similar. You know, once that crumbles, once you've been defeated in, on so many sides, um, I think you, I think as a culture, you then have to rebuild. Um, and but and you know, you know, using the Japanese or the Germans as, as an example, I, I find both their cultures because I've I've travelled extensively through Germany and through Japan, and that as people, they're incredibly. Um, they recognize the, the, their country's history, but at the same time, they don't allow it to define them. Um, and I think that they, you know, it's, it takes decades for a country and a culture to come to terms with atrocities that, you know, their own people have dealt have, have, have given out. But I think it's, it's, it's amazing to see how those cultures are, especially, you know, as you change generations, the kids are being taught how, we, how bad we used to be and how we can now be better. And, you know, I know we're a little off subject because we're talking about Southeast Asia, but my big example, not big example, my small example is Germany in one little aspect. And I love playing board games. And I'm not talking Monopoly and Clue. I'm talking stuff that you've never heard of. And most of these board games come out of Germany. And from what I've understood, and I haven't researched this, it's just what I'm told, is that after World War II, the German society said, we need to change. We need to get away from war and warlike stuff. And they changed most of their games up to that point. Most of the world's games were some sort of war type of games. And they totally turned it around. And all the games coming out are non-war-like games. And they are phenomenal. And um, you know, and I don't know, all of these came out of Germany, but some of my favorite, Ticket to Ride, which is a, a train game, and you're trying to make these train networks, and um, Settlers of Catan, where you're settling different things, but these, they're just, they take it completely away from combating each other, and you are competing, but you're not competing in a warlike thing, and we're just talking board games, and how they've changed that aspect which, you know, you've got to imagine that goes to every aspect of their life type of thing. But let's get back to Southeast Asia and, and enough about the, yeah. the changing of empires and that type <laughs> of thing. Um, so we're talking cultures within the seven different countries you visited. What other cultures struck you like the Japanese did? Well, the Japanese are obviously a, a, a very... Uh the complete on one end of the spectrum. Um, I, I didn't enjoy China as much as I was hoping I would. Uh, we went to, we flew into Beijing, and this was the year after the Beijing Olympics, okay. which I think was 2008. I could be wrong, um, but yeah, it was the year after the Beijing Olympics. So a lot of the the structures and everything were there, but of course nothing was being used. And Beijing as a city was it was it was just it, it got back to being quite dirty, um, lots of smog. I mean, you could not see more than about five or six miles um, in any direction because of the haze of the uh, the pollutants and the atmosphere was so bad. Um, so fortunately, we only stayed there for a day or two. We went and did the... Um, uh, I, I, Andrea actually got very, very sick, so I ended up going to do the uh, Hidden Palace all by myself in Tiananmen Square. Um, so we went to visit that and then went up to the, the, uh, the Great Wall. And I just found that, you know, and this is inherent of anywhere you go that's a tourist destination. 
Um, but I found it was generally everywhere in China. Basically, if, if you are, if you do not appear to be Chinese, then you're automatically labeled as a tourist. Um, and you are be followed and heckled and just the, the hawkers trying to sell you stuff all the time just became, and, and, and they don't take no for an answer. I think that they they learned from the uh, the, the old school of uh, sales training where uh, the, the the customer has to say no fifty times before they uh, before they, they 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 give up and walk away. But it, it's it's very challenging, and I think certainly that was an eye opener, and it was exhausting. By the end of the day, like we would get back to our hostel and just collapse, and it's just like I just don't want to go out again. Um, we 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 really. What, but funnily enough, um, when I say that it was dirty, we, we took an overnight train from Beijing to um, Shanghai to ta catch our flight out. And I was really nervous about this. It's the first time I've ever taken an overnight train. I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be so gross. It's going to be disgusting. Um, but we, we were not in first class or anything. It was like second or third class. And we were in with two Chinese businessmen. Uh, it was four, four uh, sorry, two bunk beds in, in our cabin. And it was pristine. It was a lot. It was the nicest train ride I've ever taken. It was such <laughs> a great train ride. Um, and but yeah, so so that surprised me. And then Shanghai was just a little bit more upmarket. It was it was a lot nicer, a lot cleaner. Um, and, but again, the hawkers doesn't matter where you went. They they, they they you could be walking down the street and there'd be nobody on the street, and suddenly somebody would appear trying to sell you something. Hmm. It was it's, it's just a very interesting culture. Their 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 level of capitalism is uh, is. <laughs> Seems to put everybody else to shame in terms of how, how that everybody, absolutely everybody, is trying to make a quick buck. Even um, though the government's still communist, is yes, it? yeah. So it's an interesting mix. There. Yes, it is, uh, and, and, and just, yeah, and just they, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting side of their culture. Um, so, so from there, we went down to Hong Kong. Absolutely loved Hong Kong. Uh, we spent a, a few days there, did some hiking up to um, uh, Victoria Peak. Um, and Hong Kong is part of China, but it is separate from China at the same time because yeah, it so was British up until I believe ninety nine. Yeah, so so we so could, could you tell the difference between the two? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you could tell that. I mean, Hong Kong is I think it's a Chinese protectorate. Okay. So it would be a little bit like um, oh, I'm trying to give it a good example. Um, so it's still governed by the Chinese. My, my understanding is it's still governed by the Chinese. Maybe Puerto Rico being a good example. Be yeah, be like a Puerto Rico to 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 the U.S. Um, even though Hong Kong actually is attached to China, um, it still maintains its own identity for sure. Um, and what was interesting is we took um, a fast ferry ride over to Macau, which is um, China's equivalent of Las Vegas. Okay. Um, and we went across there, and it was very. You could definitely see there was so much British influence in Hong Kong versus Macau, which was like 100% Chinese. Um, but still, because Macau is a huge destination, as I said, it's like, a, like the Vegas of, of China, um, there was a lots of Western influence there. Um, so it was, it was, it was very neat to, to see how, how much money they put into the casinos there and their entertainment and their nightlife. And it was, that was, kind of, that was definitely a neat trip. So if, if you're in Hong Kong, I'd recommend at least taking a day or two to go visit Macau um, just, just for the, the spectacle of it. I think okay. It was, it, was quite, it was quite impressive. Just like we would go to Vegas for the spectacle of Vegas. Exactly, yeah. Um, so from Hong Kong, we then uh, flew down to Singapore. Uh, and Singapore is like just this tiny little country on the bottom of the the Malay Peninsula, but man, is it ever a busy little country? <laughs> um, like one of the, I think Singapore is the biggest, uh, the, the busiest commercial port in Southeast Asia. And man, can you see it? I mean, there are there are tankers and commercial traffic in the the, the Straits of Malacca, like you wouldn't believe. I couldn't imagine sailing through there. Well, throughout history, and you know. Especially the Italians, but throughout history, you hear the term city-state. Mm -hmm. You know, and Italy used to be that way. Um, Greece used to be that way before everything was united. And in the modern era, I can only think of Singapore as a true city-state. They mm -hmm. are a city that is its own country. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to... They're the only country I know of that were forced to be independent. Mm -hmm. Everyone else wanted their independence... Singapore was like the British didn't want him anymore. No one wanted to take him. And it was like, I guess we're independent type mm -hmm. of thing, which is very interesting. But I hear exactly what you're saying. It's just, it's this very modern city and it's the entire country. And surprisingly has the most powerful passport in the world. Mm -hmm. They compete with Germany, but right now they are like one country ahead 
of they can get in more countries with their passport without visas than anyone else. I would never never have guessed Singapore to be that country. I think it's probably because they probably leverage the, uh, the the amount of um, commercial traffic that comes through there when they're talking about you know the the, the political side of of granting visas. Um, so I would, I would not be surprised if that's their biggest leverage. Um, but something I, ha I did find um, really interesting through the whole area of the world, especially through Hong Kong and Singapore, as you said, was the British influence, um, because they, they used to both of them used to be British protectorates, and and just seeing uh, you know the historical forts and everything, and learning about, I mean, God, I like I talk about an empire that crumbled. Um, the yeah, it's just amazing to see all these areas where the British had strongholds. Um, and, and how you know every single one of them all went the same way where, where the people realized I don't want to be controlled by somebody who's not from here um, so I, I think it was it was really fascinating to see that side of it but also to see how the culture the British culture had been adopted quite quite significantly in those two areas um, so it was very surprising to see that you know in the middle of the South Pacific uh, sorry in the middle of the, the, the Southeast Asia right. um, you know th that kind of influence in their culture and did you find Singapore to be very clean? Yes, Singapore is super clean. It was very nice, uh, very nice city. And um, I have heard it is illegal to import gum. Yes, yeah. You, you, if you, if you, if you are chewing gum or you or caught spitting gum or spitting on the street, it's an instant fine. And that's just amazing. I guess for the littering part is that where that comes I, from it comes from the littering but i think it's also just the hygiene side of it and, okay. and you know because the, the the chinese influence I mean, in china um there was still like in uh, in uh, beijing there were still signs everywhere saying no spitting because the, the part of I, i'm not sure if it's it's pretty largely due to the uh, the pollution issue but chinese people in in beijing especially will um they hawk up their phlegm they just spit it on the street and it's gross. I mean, it's, it, and, and you know, you'll walk down the street, and everybody's doing it all day long. Huh. So you can just imagine it's just like sidewalks. Just you don't really see the phlegm, but there's, there's obviously lots of just gelatinous substances <laughs> on the sidewalks, and it's it's just not very appealing. Um, but I remember for the for the Beijing Olympics, the, the, they implemented the same system as Singapore, where the, anybody caught spitting on the street was fine. But after the Olympics, it was back, spit away. Yeah, it was back to back to uh, back to normal. Okay. And do you find Singapore? maybe not as precise on timing and everything as Japan, but did you find some of that where it, the very punctual, very clean, very everything like that? Yeah, I did. It, um, what was interesting though, is we took the overnight train from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur. Um, and it was just, yes, yeah, so in Singapore is very, um, uh, very modern technologically. Um, they, they have a lot of tech industry, and just to get on this train, which was just a bucket of bolts, mm. uh, it was it was one of those ones where I, I think for the whole train it was it was a eight or nine hour train ride I think, um, and it was through the night and it was slow. I mean, we probably could have walked faster. So in China, you took a train and you expected it to be horrible, and, and it, was, it was phenomenal. It, and then in Singapore, we expected to take a really nice train. It was not. It was it was a it was a, a pipe and pipe and canvas bunk. Um, in a train that just uh, you know the doors were open, you could hear the hear the tracks <laughs> clickety clack outside, and it was you know a very different experience. You just never know what you're gonna get. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to trains though. I mean, if, you, if you're train buffs, I mean, obviously the trains in Japan were just uh, just mind blowing. We went on the train in Japan, which uh, regularly travels. I think it's around 200 miles an hour, uh, which is the bullet train. Um, and then the we went on the fastest commercial train in the world, which was from downtown. Shanghai to the airport and it's like 60 miles and it takes 11 minutes wow uh, and I think I believe that train was going it was a maglev train and it, it, it went something ridiculous like 230 m miles per hour that is crazy. Um, it was it was insanely fast. And when we got off that that train at the other end at the airport, there was a big hole in the front windshield and feathers. Okay. And it was like, "Oh, so that's what a bird strike looks like on a train when you're traveling at 230 miles an hour." Wow. That's amazing. Now, real quick, let's jump away and you also said you did Africa, which there's yep. Africa is a big co uh, continent. So, what part of Africa? Yeah, did so, you so do? when I said we did Africa, we, 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 we climbed Kilimanjaro, okay. and then we came down from that, which is in Tanzania. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's on the Tanzania side, but right on the border between Tanzania and Kenya. It's, okay. it's just to the side of the Serengeti, which is the tan on Tanzania. 
Um, and then from there, we also uh, we went then and transferred to Kenya, uh, to Nairobi, and then went and did saf uh, safari on the Masamara. Okay. Um, which I had previously done um, as a when, when I was in high school, we had a um, a school exchange program with a school on the Sisi Islands on Lake Victoria in Uganda. Um, so when we when we went for we went there for four weeks when I was maybe sixteen, um, and we went down and spent like two or three weeks on the island helping them build part of their school, and then we came back and then flew into Nairobi and then went to the Masamara then and I will recommend it a hundred times. Okay. Um, and all I will recommend though is you go don't try as best as you can to find um, a guide who is not willing to just follow the crowd. Because that was the worst thing we experienced in safari is that you can always tell where the animals are because that's where the big circle of matatus is. The matatus are like their little white buses. Okay. Gotcha. It's like, like, like a little Nissan bus with, with, a, with a, where the top pops up so you get shade, but you can stand out the top of the bus and, and, and take photographs. Um, but these, uh, you could see a big circle of white vans in the distance on the plains. And it's like, oh, there'll be something over there. So typically, if you don't have a good guide, they will just follow the big packs of buses. And there's nothing more frustrating than you know trying to see wild animals with a whole bunch of tourists. Um, so it was we had a fantastic guy. The guy's name was Big Mike, and when I say Big Mike, he was big. He was really big. He was like 500 pounds big. It's like wow. please don't let us get. Well, if we get attacked by tigers, I know I can. I'll trade lions. I know I can run faster. <laughs> but, and they're going to take a long time eating. That yeah, guy. yeah. But he was an amazing guy, uh, and um, but he was fantastic. I mean, he he could spot a giant turtle. Uh, a giant tortoise. Um, we were across a valley, and he was just, "Oh, guys, you see that giant tortoise over there? It was probably like a mile away." Wow! And I'm like, "What?" So I grabbed the binoculars. I'm looking, and he, he said, "Look, that thing that looks like a rock. It's moving." And it, yeah, it was a giant tortoise from a mile away. And this guy could, I could not, I cannot tell you, like no word of a lie. This guy had eyes like I couldn't believe. Huh. Um, so we found all kinds of stuff. We found a family of cheetahs with cubs, um, just us. We found a family of lions that had cubs. Um, and, and he said that he goes down there so often he kind of knows wh where they range um, and he, he, he kind of tries to follow, tries to go to the same spots over again, hoping they're going to be in the same because they have their um... And what country is he out of? So, so, so we hired him in Nairobi and, But he can go to the different countries or he just stays in Nairobi? Uh, so, so, yeah, so Nairobi's uh, in Kenya so, so he drove us from uh, Nairobi down to the resort we were staying Okay. Uh, and then as part of the package he, he stays, he had friends down there so he goes and stays with his friends and then each morning he comes and picks you up and we did three days uh, three days of safari Okay. and we saw, I think they, uh, is it the big, the big five or the big, oh, I can't remember there's like five key animals that like the, I think it's five I think it's lion rhino um, lion rhino isn't a hippo in there hippo elephant elephant and giraffe okay. I don't think it's a giraffe I think it's something else but it's the big five but anyway we got to, to me giraffe would be up there I I, I think they're amazing they're, they're, be, they're beautiful I, you know and we saw all of them and the only one we didn't find was a rhino because like the black rhinos are very endangered so there's very few of them left. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, we saw everything. We saw stuff. We saw lions multiple times. We saw um, hyenas a couple of times. Um, what was your favorite animal to see? And your wife's? Or did y'all have the different? The, the best experience we had was with the cheetahs. It was the, the little fat family of cheetahs, and um, they they came and they actually they actually curled curled up in the shade right next to our truck, and we were there for about an hour, and they were just kind of playing, and the, the, the cubs were playing right beside us, and it was just us. It was an absolutely magical moment. Just. You know, these are these are creatures that normally speed around the wow. the plains at seventy miles an hour, and but yeah, they're just chilling. It was great. It was awesome. Well, and I have a lady that I follow on Instagram who has some phenomenal African safari photos. And unfortunately, right now, guys, I can't remember the name, but check the show notes, and I will make sure to put a link for her right there. But it is just amazing to see these animals. I just that is my, at this point I've I've had different things where my number one that I checked off, but a safari in Africa is one of my number one things that I want to do at this point. I, I think it's still it's something that everybody should do. Um, certainly sooner rather than later. I mean, I mean, tourism is obviously still their biggest income earner, um, but the conservation issue is huge. So I think if if you do go and 
um, ensure you're going with a company that you know that is being mindful of the conservation and and trying to you know give the animals their distance and things like that. I mean, there's obviously a lot of companies trying to make a quick buck, um, but yeah, definitely look into the reviews of the companies you choose and make sure that they're doing their their tourism ethically. Awesome. Okay, let's get back to the boat. I mean, we're running out of time here, and you guys are on the boat for a year maybe longer hopefully you extend it longer but what are you expecting to get out of this year that you have just started and what are your plans as far as your route you're going to take and what is the end game what would change to say we're going to stay on longer is it just being able to afford it and make money or if it's just the family is so much closer together we will figure out how to do it well, I think uh, I, obviously the the financial side of it always plays a big part because you still got to still got to eat. Right. Even though I always joke that fish is free and rice is cheap. So, <laughs> and we found that out the other day because on, on our on our passage over here, literally from leaving the dock, we caught our first fish. We, they caught. Listen, to this guys, we are cruising the southern coast of Grenada, and basically we're not even cruising. We're leaving the the shipyard which was in Grenada Marine which is roughly the southeast corner and just went along the southern coast and came to St. George's and anchored. It could not have been more than you know it was probably like 20 to 40 feet deep the entire mm-hmm. time and these guys catch a wahoo which is your open water blue water fish should not have been there and these guys caught it yeah and it was was for it was just a great it was just that was the perfect day like everything of that day and and i will say like when you move onto a boat for the first time there are a lot of bad days there's i'm i'm finding just because i'm adapting to to the lifestyle um of of maintaining the boat so it, it can be very frustrating but but that particular day would just it couldn't have gone any better just finding this great anchorage catching the fish making friends filleting the fish, having friends over for dinner. Um, it was just it was just an all-round perfect day, and, and, and that's that's what we are hoping to have more of is, is, is those days. Well, it's those days right there that make the week or two that you spent in the boatyard getting the boat ready, you're like, okay, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, you it's trouble, you have trouble seeing it in the boatyard, yep. but once you have a day like that, you're like, okay, never mind, everything's good. And... I know from my experience, the first year is, and you're already seeing this part of it, is Mm -hmm. the most expensive year and the highest learning curve. I mean, I'm sure just in the first week or two, your mind is just being like blown away with this steep learning curve on equipment, like you said, systems and equipment and you're learning right now. I remember you telling me that you're learning about your water maker and you need this one bolt and what it takes to get it or whatever. And it does calm down. That's my encouragement to you. Yeah. After that first year or so, you start to settle in, you know, financially, but more importantly, with your learning curve, with your um, comfort level, and all that. After that first year, but the um, so what? Where are y'all playing? Your Grenada? You're just going to go up the chain through the Virgin Islands, the Bahamas? What? What exactly? Exactly that. I mean, we don't have a lot of hard um, schedule plans in terms of dates, apart from the fact we're planning on being in St. Lucia for Christmas because my parents are coming down to stay with us for two weeks. Um, so we've got until October of next year to um, to decide whether or not we want to keep going because that's when we have to go back to work. So October first. So. We want to be in Florida by June because that's the start of the next hurricane season, so our insurance will require us to be outside of the hurricane box. Which is just north of Florida which for is your ju- insurance? Yeah, so, so okay. we're into, into um, the Carolinas at that point. Um, so we're going to know if we are going to, at that point, sell the boat, and if we do, then we're just going to sell the boat in Florida because I feel that that's the, one of the easiest places to sell. Right. It's one of the hottest markets, it's, uh, and, and it's very easy for anybody in the, in the continental U.S. to, to fly to. Um, so, so that's the that's the backup plan. Um, but if we decide at that point we are going to go longer than, than, than a year, then who knows? I mean, we have very loose plans that we'd like to be like to do the, the, the Great Loop and go north to New York and go through the intercoastal waterway into Lake Erie, sail the Great Lakes to Chicago, take the mass back off again, and then sail down the uh, the Illinois River into the Mississippi. Um, it's, that's a ton of engine hours and a ton of diesel, but what better thing to do in the middle of hurricane season than go and do something crazy like that? And you don't tend to see too many um, forty-seven foot 
sorry, 46 foot catamarans on the intercoastal waterways or into uh, into the, the core of the Great Lakes. Yeah, no kidding. And the, the three pieces of advice I have for you, um, two places that you should definitely check out while you're in the area. If you make it, and you're saying Florida, so I'm assuming you may go down the Florida Keys, and if you do, go out to the Dry Tortugas, which is like 60 miles west of Key West, and spend a couple days out there at least, and it is phenomenal. I mean, it is everything that you want, and it's just remote, and it's a national park, and that type of thing. And the other place is just at the Florida Georgia border on the Georgia side is Cumberland Island and this was owned by the uh, Carnegie's back in the late 1800s and so there's these massive uh, mansions that are there one's burned down you can get tours of others you have wild horses you have these beautiful live oaks I mean I've been there four times and I could not wait to get back it just is a phenomenal and I believe that is a part of the national park system also. But those are my two favorite spots in the whole area outside of Cape Canaveral, which, you know, mm-hmm. if you yeah. love space. But the other thing, that, and this is for anybody listening, if you're going to do anything along the East Coast or the Great Loop or anything, get the Skipper Bob um, guides. I've seen those, yeah. And they are not fancy at all. They're cheap, like 15 16 20 bucks. No photos, no nothing, but what they do, they go by mile marker. You know, you are mile one here, mile two do this, mile ten do this, and they just work your way right up. And I had other guides, uh, fancy guides with everything. I never looked at them. The Skipper Bob, we just kept flipping the page and knowing exactly what bridge to call, where to anchor, what, and it gave you everything. Though, So the Skipper Bob guides are the way to go when you're on the East Coast. Perfect, I remember that. So with that, we're going to wrap up. I hope you make it longer than the year. And you mentioned that you have your social media, so why don't you kick out and promote that real quick and whatever you want to yeah. send people to. Yeah, so uh, so we didn't mention in the beginning. So, yeah, we're on a 47-foot um, leopard catamaran. Um, it. I can never remember. It's a forty-six or forty-seven. I can't it's remember. It's a forty-six hundred. It's a forty-six, um, and uh, it's called uh, sailing vessel Moose on the Loose. Which is uh, in the name of uh, the boat, but all our branding is under our website, which is bayerfoottravels.com, and that's Bayer like the aspirin, B-A-Y-E-R, foottravels.com, uh, and you can find us on YouTube, you can find us on uh, Facebook, and you can find us on Instagram, uh, all under Bayer Foot Travels. I will put links for that in the show notes, and with that, Mike, thanks for joining me. It's been an honor, and I'm going to tell everybody out there. You know, make sure you come to svguidinglight.com. I would love to have you on the boat for a charter. Whether you want to do a week and see an island, let me know which island in the Caribbean you want to see, or Central America in a couple years when I get there. And I also offer two weeks where you charter a cabin and you're part of the cruise, so you really get the cruising experience. With that said, my name is Shane McClellan. I'm your captain and host. May you have fair winds and following seas.